Well, good morning there, Todd. Good morning! Oh, still got it. You still got it. <laughs> Even after all the rehearsing. Yes, that was a... Uh, <clears throat> good morning. Mm. Yeah, good morning. That'll wake you up. It is Memorial Day weekend right now. <laughs> I mean, probably not when people are listening to this, but it is Memorial no, Day weekend <laughs> for us. Thank you. Yeah, how has your Memorial Day weekend been so far? It is going swimmingly. We had a beautiful podcast yesterday with Susan Hayward. Today, we have a great, wonderful guest who we'll introduce in a couple seconds. But what have you been up to since yesterday? Well, since yesterday, I mean, actually, we, we kind of did a short intro last time. So just to let everybody know, I keep referencing in the past two podcasts that I met at Embassy Suites. And that is because I came up here for a concert on Friday to see a Halsey concert and then rec- realized that we had two podcasts back to back. So I just made a whole, you know, I moved in to the embassy. You have a little suites. studio there. This is what I, and you, you can't stand looking at it anymore. So I had to blow well, my background. We to, can we please tell everybody <laughs> about the embassy suites you are staying in? Because it sounds like in Charlotte, North Carolina, we're calling you out. Y'all need to do some renovations. Yeah. Maybe just a little bit of we, we updating. Need a little updating. It, it is like, like the, 1995 threw up behind Laura. Like, Oh my God. It is a, and throwing up is the perfect way mm-hmm. to put it because are those yellow walls behind? I can't. It's yes, they are. Now, you, so. Yes, it's yeah. He's he made me blur it, so I can't. You can't even see it. But it, yes, they're yellow walls, and all of the chairs are at least at ankle level. So I am propped up on a bunch of pillows right now. To and this is my first on the and road. You still continue to sink. Yeah, you know it's, In the chair. It's still happening. I am slowly getting shorter. As we yeah. talk. But no, it's, I, I, I literally during that yesterday, you were say, saying to me, stop moving. I was like, I can't, like, I'm literally sitting on a waterbed <laughs> on this chair. But you said so, there's a lot of, there's NASCAR, there's a NASCAR convention going yes, on. Yes, there's, um, yeah, we're right next to the speedway. Um, we were not aware that that was going on. But yes, there's a, I don't, I wouldn't call it a convention. It's got a name, but there, there's a, a big race going on and, um, uh, so it's been a very interesting experience. I will say kudos to NBC Suites for their their breakfast. They are doing they're nailing it. They're doing the Lord's work with the best they got. I mean, but also like y'all should help them. Whoever the head of Embassy Suites, come to North Charlotte, North Carolina. Just do a little secret shopping, see what's going on. But otherwise, it's been a delightful experience, and it, it proved to me that I can I can be on the move with the podcast. Well, you know, so. and it's interesting because you're you're probably more attuned to it, anyways, because you're in hospitality. So you, yes, yes, that shit pops right out at you. It's honestly like it's kind of obnoxious. Like you go to like a restaurant, and it's like the first thing you notice is like how many minutes has it been since. Of Somebody course. came and said a word to us or, yeah. or this, I, I'm really guilty of finding just grammatical errors in menus and, and not being able to get over that. So yeah, you're right. It's kind of like, I, who am I to say that I'm a little bit too, uh, <laughs> too biased here, yeah. but you know, they're doing great. They're doing great. And Charlotte is great. And I've, you know, I love that you said they're doing the Lord's work with yeah. <laughs> <Get> the breakfast. <laughs> Love that. I love that journey I mean, for you. <laughs> not much, not much else to do here. So, well, today we um, have a wonderful. We have a wonderful guest on the program today. Oh, we do. Yes, yes, we do. Mr. Matthew Gardner. He's pretty great. The interview was good. It was forward-thinking, honest. I mean, it it definitely was. I think more insightful for me than maybe you, just because it was kind of we got to know what it was like to grow up as a gay man. And right. as we, we discussed before it it's, in the late eighties, early nineties, it was just a yeah, different time. Yeah. But it's just what, and, and now it's kind of dawning on me too, that that was the height of AIDS pe- pandemic. I mean, like epidemic and, yeah. and all of that going on. So like, yeah, that, that extra level of kind yes. of, well, that was happening more in the late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. But there's people remembered people were still dying and there was, was it Nixon? I think it was Nixon who wouldn't say a word about it. People were dying and nothing, mm. nothing was being done. Anyway, we're going to introduce now Matthew Gardner. Yes. So Matthew is a director, choreographer, producer, and arts leader residing in Washington, D.C., where he is the artistic director of Signature Theater. The Washington Post has called him, quote, one of the top young musical theater directors in the land. 
unquote. At Signature, Matthew has directed over 25 productions and has a strong commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion and honing the theater's anti-racist practices as well as his own. Matthew is the recipient of three Helen Hayes Awards for Outstanding Director of a Musical and has been honored with over a dozen nominations. He holds a BFA in directing from Carnegie Mellon University and is a member of the Society for Stage Directors and Choreographers. Pretty accomplished guy, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I'd say that's quite the resume. So, without further ado, Matthew Gardner. Matthew. Good morning, morning. Matthew. Hello, hello. Welcome. How are you doing today? Doing good. Trying to enjoy this Memorial Day weekend. Oh, yeah. You got any big plans? No, just like actually trying to chill out and relax and spend some time with family. So it's it's pretty it's been pretty chill. Nice. It's awesome. Well, we're happy to have you on the program. We're gonna we're gonna get go ahead and dive right into this. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey within the entertainment industry? How did you become involved with the arts? And did you grow up knowing you wanted to be in the arts? Yeah. So from my earliest my earliest memories involved the theater and and doing dance and singing. And so I, at a very early age, wanted to be a ballet dancer. That quickly gave way to choreography, which gave way to directing. And and so this has been my sort of path since I was like five years old. Really? Five? So did you, did yeah. you, did your parents kind of get you into it or did you like demand to be involved? <laughs> my parents... My parents were computer programmers, so oh like literally the, an- the antithesis <laughs> of artistic people. And both my twin brother and I, you know, my mom, my mom was a big jock, a big athlete. So she was swimming and playing soccer and she, you know, she has two little twin boys and she thinks they're going to, everybody's like, they're going to go into being jocks. And yeah. we, both, we both ended up in the arts. Oh, so your twin also ended up in the arts. He is, yeah. He's a wonderful. Um, he started as yet yeah, as an actor and a writer, and now does a bunch of film, video oh, cool. content. Cool, cool. Yeah. So you've obviously been doing this a while, and you, you just mentioned that you did ba- started with ballet. So what led you to kind of move into the directing aspect and leave the performing aspect? Yeah, I mean, I was very serious about being a ballet dancer until I was about 16 years old. Like I studied at the Washington Ballet. I spent my summers studying with Suzanne Farrell. Like I was dead set on being a ballet dancer. And then there was something when I was around 16 or 17 that just said it was too technical for me. It was too much about sort of being a robot and hitting the marks. And I felt a lack of autonomy, right, in my creative process. And so that led me to choreography, which just sort of theater was always a part of my world. And so that led to directing. Cool. As far as like, do you do you see a big difference between the performing aspect and the directing like in day to day life now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> you like being in charge. I am. <laughs> I like being in charge. I like having a looking at a bigger picture, you know, and I think there are certain artists that like sort of digging into the specificity of a single role or a single point of view within a creative process. And for me, I I find much, I'm much more excited by sort of like looking at the bigger picture and bringing all these varying viewpoints together. You know, Matthew, this podcast mainly is focused on healing and overcoming trauma and hardship. And so we spoke yesterday, uh, growing up as a gay man in Maryland, would you say it was difficult for you back then? And when did you know that you were different And uh, was your family supportive? My family was amazing. I couldn't ask for a better set of parents and a better brother in terms of my coming out and my journey being gay. But that doesn't change the fact that I was a young gay man in the late 80s, early 90s, sort of like finding myself. And I think that there was, for me focusing on these sort of movie musicals and escaping into these movie musical worlds was a very big part of finding myself and finding a place for myself in my journey as a young man. So I think that was very important. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, honestly, like, uh, do you feel that, you know, that, that getting into art was something that, that helped you kind of work through that trauma? And do you kind of believe that there are a lot of people in the whole 
art industry that are kind of doing the same thing. And you even mentioned escapism. Do you think that that that's like healthy? Do you feel like it's like helped you? (laughs) Sure. I mean, yes, I do. I mean, I think that for me, it is it is what I needed to sort of like imagine a more gentle world, a world that felt more magical than the world that I was living in as a young a young gay kid who was bullied, who was picked on. So then to be able to like go home and close my bedroom door and pretend to be Judy Garland sitting on a haystack (laughs) and singing about somewhere over the rainbow. I mean, those were transformative things for me to sort of like imagine other worlds, more perfect worlds was really important. That's what Dan Levy said when he wrote Shit's Creek, that he wanted to, yeah. that's why he imagined Shit's Creek to be, because it's never really, really focused. Yeah, it's never really focused on that people are gay. They just, they're just, that's what they he just wishes are. the world was. was yeah, you that just accept, that's, that's a really good point. I'm obsessed with Shit's Creek and I've never really <laughs> thought about that, that it's like kind of not even like a topic. It's just there and you just live in it. And, you know, I think in general, it seems like, a lot of people, did you feel like once you came into the art world, you're like, these are my people, like, this is where, oh, yeah. yeah, where yeah. I'm supposed to be. So it, it seems like a yeah. lot of camaraderie there. Yeah. I think it's very telling that like, a, that there are, I don't know that I knew this as a five-year-old, but like now there is, there is a reason there are so many gay men working in musical theater and in theater. Like we we're gravitating towards like-minded individuals, people that see the world in a similar way that that we do. So that, again, I don't think I was aware of that when I was five years old. But <laughs> maybe like, you were. Maybe you were just maybe that. I was. Yeah, you were that self-aware at five years old, <laughs> yeah. and you just maybe. knew that's where it was. So what did, in general, that you know, kind of speaking of that whole the LBGTQ community as a whole, do you kind of feel like? There is a level that that you kind of reach. Like, they, I feel bad being the one asking this question, honestly, because I'm yeah. not, I'm the only one on this situation that is not gay. But do you feel as though there's been enough change and and movement forward that you've kind of succeeded in reaching what you would consider equality? And if not, like, what more would do you think needs to be done to kind of bring that about? I mean, I think the world has changed in miraculous ways for white gay men, cisgender gay men. Okay. I think that there is much, there is much. Can you elaborate on that, please? (laughs) Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, I don't think five-year-old Matthew could ever imagine sort of marriage equality. And, and I, I think that there has been much growth for white cisgender gay men. Okay. At least from my perspective, that doesn't mean that we are, that, that, Bullying doesn't still happen. That doesn't mean that it's still not a hard road for a young white gay man in this world. But I do think that when you look at sort of the journey of what it was like in the early 90s for me and what Mm -hmm. it is like for a young gay man right now, I think it has changed. Yeah, well, there's, you, a, there's a, a yeah. bit more acceptance. And do you remember I, back then, because I'm right there with you, same time period growing up. Do you? Rem- mm-hmm. I think the only thing that I remember seeing on television and being really like, kind of like, oh, there is there is hope was when Ellen came out on television in, in yeah. her show. That was kind of the only. That was, was the a first, big like, deal. Even that was yeah. a huge deal. Yeah. I mean, deal. Will and Grace was. Oh, Will and yeah. Grace was massive for me as uh, in high school, and Ellen was huge. And queer as folk, I used to like sneak queer into our folk. basement and watch yes. queer as folk. Queer and, like, as folk. You snuck into your basement to watch were... it. You couldn't watch it out. Oh in the yeah, open? <laughs> no, that was even of... that was a little too risque for my mm-hmm. parents. Oh really? Oh yeah. I guess it was a little yeah. bit like maybe you were too young in general. It doesn't yes. matter if you were. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I did that too, especially with MTV. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, speaking of identity, you are a twin, as you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And can you speak to what it is like growing up as a twin? And what is something that you think is sort of unique to the twin experience? Sure. Yeah. So I have a twin brother named James. And I mean, I think it's, it is hard for me to speak to like what is different about somebody who is a twin and somebody who isn't because my, okay, my only real fast. Right? I, know this is your, I yeah. hate to interrupt, but real fast. Are y'all fraternal yeah. or identical? We're identical. 
Oh my goodness, you so, are! Oh yeah. my gosh, yeah, we could yeah, yeah. we could be interviewing James right now and not know it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I think as we have gotten older, it is fairly clear which one is which. But okay. um, and he is he is straight. I am gay. Like there are there you can you can tell the difference between us. Yeah, I mean, growing up, he. I don't know. I think we are very we are very close. We are very have been our whole lives, and I think that. There's a degree to which, like, growing up, we were always the Gardner brothers. We were never seen as individuals. Uh-huh, we were always okay. seen as sort of a unit. And even today, we're still sort of seen as a unit because we live near each other. We are, we work in the sa- at the same theater. Like, there's a degree oh, really? to which. Yeah, Y'all work there's together. There's a degree to which we're, st- yes. There's a degree to which we're still seen as the Gardner brothers. But maybe, maybe you being a ballet dancer, maybe that was a, your way back then of sort of like, this yeah. this is who I am. Like, th- guys, this is what yeah. I do. Well, and definitely when we went to college, you know, I went to Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. He went to University of Maryland in College Park. And we, for a while there, like, we didn't call each other on the phone. We didn't email each other. It was, there was a definite, like, couple of years there where it was, like, really about trying to become individuals after years of being seen as sort of a duo. Well, it seems like you, you you mentioned that he was kind of very supportive about coming out. In what ways did he kind of like support you? How did you feel so supported? I mean, the big thing with my family is they just always knew, you know, okay. and they, ne- did they, they never did they tell pressured you? me. Did they? No, 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 no. <laughs> they, and they never, but like, they sort of told, I mean, like they would ask James about his girlfriends. They would never ask me. Oh, they, okay. they were always just sort of like waiting for the moment for me to tell them. When I came out, my mother laughed at me, which <laughs> was very, I was like, wait, <laughs> that why? sounds also I was like, fun, this is, but maybe not. Yeah. yeah. So she laughed. She laughed at me and she said, not like she wasn't laughing hysterically, but yeah. she was like, of course, of course you are. And her response was, Matthew, you owned every Judy Garland album by the age of 10. <laughs> Like, you were really then, into Judy Garland I, then. Okay. I was very into Judy Garland. <laughs> and so there were a lot of stereotypes. Like the the young boy ballet dancer who loved Judy Garland and Gene Kelly and musical theater. And a lot of stereotypes there that my parents were like, clearly, yeah. this is, you know, it wasn't a surprise. <laughs> what age were you when you finally kind of put it out there? Came out? Yes. So I came out to my brother in like freshman year of college. It took a while to come out to my parents, but not, again, not, I was never hiding it. I just, there wasn't, to me, it was like, well, there's not a boyfriend to introduce you to. So what are we talking about? So the reason I came out to my parents was because they were going to write an article in Metro Weekly, uh, which is the gay paper in DC about me being a gay Oh, director. yeah, you probably should get I ahead like, of that. Well, I should probably tell my parents. So. <laughs> I don't want them to see it in the paper before, exactly. even though they knew oh it was a courtesy. I mean, again, it was one of those things. It was like, it wasn't like they didn't know. It just was something we didn't talk about. Let's just clarify. <laughs> yeah. All on the same page. <laughs> yes, let's yeah. all get on the same page. So, yeah. I, you know, I from what Todd has told me, you know, you're obviously an amazing director and I have so much work under your belt. But I think a big thing that he really kind of imparted on me when we talked about interviewing you was that you're very passionate about equality and representation in casting and and in your work in general. Where does that passion really stem from for you? And is it solely or partly or at all related to kind of being being gay and growing up in that situation? I mean, I think for me, And this, it has taken me a while to sort of clarify this for myself, but theater, musical theater in particular, tells the story often of the outsider. I think that's why gay men see themselves in it, that, you know, it tell, it tends to tell the story, whether it's Fiddler on the Roof or even, you know, The Sound of Music, even that like it's the person whose perspective is outside the norm, right? Okay. And sense. so to me, to me, you can't tell those stories with just a group of white individuals, right? <laughs> yes. To tell those stories. Well, some people means try, but their, you they do. <laughs> they do. And I think that there has been over time, there has been a 
whitewashing of the intention of musical theater that like there's a reason that the majority of these musicals are written by gay Jewish men. There is a reason that. Oh my God. I literally never thought about that. I know. I just said like, kind of, I just wrote that down. I don't know why it like kind of (laughs) blew my mind. There's a reason, you know, there's a reason that we gravitate towards stories again of the, the person who is outside of the status quo, outside of the norm. And that's what I gravitate. That's the reason I gravitated towards these stories. So that's why it's, I I always have to remind myself, like, why are you sharing these stories? And to me, it is to show the point of view of that is not the norm. Yeah. Well, I noticed kind of stalking you on the internet, say Uh research, that there was kind of a highlight of remaking a lot of musicals. Mm -hmm. And and what kind of drew you to that? Like as like those specific ones and which one was kind of like your favorite I had to do it. Yeah, sure. Kind of one. I mean, I think that when we think of the music, for me, like my favorite musicals are West Side Story and Cabaret and and the stories, again, that are I saw that production. It was so good. Cabaret. Oh, you saw it, it in oh person. Oh, my God, yeah. Yes, it did. It was amazing. It was incredible. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I am interested in the stories that sort of illuminate our humanity and challenge the status quo. And so there are re- the reasons I'm attracted to like La Caja Fall and, and, and West Side Story and Cabaret. And because at the core, they're stories about viewing the world differently, right? Or breaking down oppressive practices or, and so that's what really I am drawn to. Okay. Well, that, I mean, that makes sense. I think it's it's full circle. And I I think it's really awesome that that, that's an outlet for, I've never, like Todd said, I've never really thought about that is of every main character and a lot of those Mm -hmm. plays are that that is their whole struggle. So, I mean, that's very illuminating. Well, in your opinion, okay, let's shift gears a little bit. There was the big Me Too movement uh, a few years ago mm-hmm. and, you know, the Time's Up movement and stuff like that. In your opinion, has the movement yeah. affected the musical theater community, specifically the musical theater community? And do you think there has been meaningful change? And do you see those changes on a day-to-day basis, if so? I think it has to have impacted things. I think Me Too and the Time's Up movement goes well beyond the past two years. But if we're yes. just yeah. speaking of like, the past two years, it's been traumatic, right? It's we have we have gone through so much from this pandemic to the racial reckoning of, with George Floyd, and and then we're, t- uh, I mean, just the past week of oh my gosh, I was crying. I literally, with, yeah, yeah, I was crying sobbing. before this interview, and I literally had to get myself together because it's just yeah. so heartbreaking. But yes, I'm sorry to interrupt. That yeah. it's just, yeah. I mean, but then you're dealing with sort of the political landscape of people trying to take the bodily autonomy away from women and then not giving two shits. Sorry. I don't know if I can curse. You are allowed to curse as much as you want on here. (laughs) About the children that are alive right now. So all of this trauma has to inform the way in which we behave in the rehearsal room right now in the creative process. I mean, I think about it. I think about like five years ago and how these conversations were sort of non-existent. And because of, again, because of the Me Too movement, because of Time's Up, because of the pandemic, because of all of these things, trauma is much more at the forefront mm-hmm. in all of our lives. Yeah, And so we have to really be aware and clear about the processes that we are creating that allow people to use that trauma, but not in a way that is going to be re-traumatizing to them Mm -hmm. or create an unhealthy, unsafe work environment. And so, again, I look at the way I operated five years ago, and I look at the way I operate now, and we are much more... Do you think there's a a sensitivity that you bring to it now that maybe five years ago was always there, but maybe now you're way more aware of it? To be honest, like for me personally, I didn't even go to therapy until two years ago. Oh, like wow. I, yeah. for, for that me, says a like, lot, I think, about yeah. the past couple of years. Yeah. I am much, I think in order for me to be a better leader, I have to be more aware of 
my own trauma and the things that trigger me so that I am able to be centered and lead a room and, and be more aware. I think, I think we are, I tend to think we are all more aware of it now than we had been in years past. Well, I mean, that's, that's always, you know, obviously good to hear that there's progress going on, but you're also, you're in DC or right outside of DC currently. Correct. I live in DC. Okay, so my my theater's right outside of DC in Virginia. So, do you feel like kind of the political climate of DC does affect the professional aspects of of or even personally? Like, do you feel it in the rehearsals? How is that like being right there? Yeah, oh, I yeah. mean, I think that it, it's extremely. Again, I don't work a lot of other places like DC <laughs> and New York are the two spaces that I am inhabiting the most as a creative person. And I think that, yeah, you can't, you can't live in DC and work in DC without being constantly aware of and bombarded by the issues that, that we are all confronting and facing in this moment. Yeah. I think people that artists that live in DC just inherently are more activists. Like they're more driven by making change. So well, that's awesome. So do you, so like, I guess that, that kind of leads me to wondering if, if, do you feel like a lot of your actors and uh, that, that are in your shows or just that you kind of surround yourself with try to be, use that platform to be vocal about, you know, basically making yes. that change. And do you feel like, it, I know you, you said that you don't go a lot of other places. However, I did see on your website that you went to Seoul, Korea. So, you know, you, you've been some places that like that you think that there might be a little bit more of a shift there being so close, like having kind of your, you're on the heartbeat of what's going on with kind of the nation and the direction. And, and do you think that there's a little bit of I don't want to say like more enlightenment there. Cause Todd, I'm sure LA you're very enlightened, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, We're starting to wonder with this podcast, what is going on? It's- sure. I think I'm careful in my answer to that because I do think also at times we, li- we live and work in a bubble that is not always aware of various perspectives. It is a very sort of liberal, woke, progressive perspective on the world which I'm not complaining about that. That's yeah. my perspective on the world. But sometimes you have to be a little more aware of that you are speaking to a very specific bubble of the country. I mean, we look, we talk right now about just very specifically about the pandemic and the way certain theaters that are in middle America are dealing with the pandemic as opposed to in DC, there's just a very sort of the people that are coming to the theater are liberal-minded people who still believe the pandemic is a thing, who still mm. believe that we need to behave in certain ways. So it's a bit easier for us than it is for a theater maybe in Oklahoma that is trying to put forward like masking policies and things like that. Yeah, so yeah. anyways. Have you ever been in a rehearsal experience where you realized, oh, this person is a huge Trump supporter or whatever, or is a Republican and like, you have to completely shift the, what you're saying because of their political beliefs. Oh, I'm not going to shift anything I'm saying. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, there were, I, yeah, it's, it's rare. Like, yeah. I think there, Obviously, I but... think there are people that are definitely Trump supporters, but I think they are more reserved in their sharing that information in a space that they know is extremely progressive and liberal. Right. So no, I can't speak to a specific instance where I tried to placate towards. Yeah, after I asked the question, Trump I was supporter. like, "He wouldn't do that. He wouldn't give a shit." <laughs> yeah, <it was laughs> no, stupid I'm, question, Todd. Sorry, no, <laughs> question. No, I said but, I went off script. I want yeah, to know. no, there no, no. It was a great question. I just, I think it's for us, like especially for me being in South Carolina, and mm-hmm. Todd being from South Carolina. I do kind of feel like we have just a, a little bit of a unique perspective on things because it's like in Charleston even yeah. it's so much more progressive than like the rest of the state so it sure. even at well, times we can Laura, be in our own downtown charts yes like the metropolitan area correct. of Charleston you go outside of that and it's like ring it a ding 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 I'll say I'm I I think I'm guilty of kind of living in this like downtown Charleston bubble, yes. bubble. and then yes. you know you go outside of it I mean currently I am in Charlotte, North Carolina, next to a NASCAR speedway race. And it, it's a different, a 
little bit of a different world right now seeing that. But it's, I think we all kind of have to admit that at a certain point that we we put ourselves in a little bit of a bubble because yep. it's, it's almost too much. Yeah, it's almost too much yep. to like absorb any of the hate or all of that. So I don't know, in a way, my 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 thoughts and prayers go out to the theaters in Oklahoma. I hope y'all are doing okay. Yeah. <laughs> Because that does not sound totally. great. It was it was even hard down here or in Charleston to get people behind mask mandates in some areas. Sure. So it's definitely a, a wild world right now. Right, and our and our our union, Laura, the Actors Equity Union, they are very specific about rehearsal rules and wearing really? masks. And oh yeah, good for them. It creates a very safe you know, I think moving through this pandemic. But Matthew, um, with so many as a director, with so many shows under your belt. You're not only the literal leader of your productions, but you're a leader in the arts community. So do you feel that there are certain expectations placed upon you as a leader that you feel pressured to live up to? And how do you handle the stress of that pressure if there is sort of that pressure? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, I think I have, I guess I feel a lot of pressure to live up to the expectations of that everyone has for our organizations in this moment, right? I think that there are sometimes there are expectations for an entire organization to respond in a certain way to something. And it's that balance between knowing what I want to say about something and the way I want to move through the world and how to address that as a as an organization, as an institution. So yeah, do you ever feel like it, you know, that you're you're having to speak for a whole group of people at a certain point? It's kind of like, well, I don't know if that yeah. I mean, I I know that you have you're surrounded by your people, if you will, of of, mm-hmm. you know, artistic, creative, progressive, but does it ever kind of feel like a lot to just be the the voice? Yeah, there are times that it feels you don't want to just be reactionary. You don't want to just be performative. You want to be authentic in your response to something. And sometimes it can feel like you are sort of falling into just saying the right thing or being performative and sometimes questioning, like, is it, do I have the right to speak for an entire organization yeah. or am I just speaking for myself? You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's so. interesting. It's definitely yeah. a, like, I mean, as somebody who runs several businesses, I sometimes am like, kind of like, whoa, this is a kind of a big thing going on. I really don't want to be the one that has to deal with it. But, you know, you just you have no option. Like it's you're you're there and and that's your responsibility. And do you feel like a lot of your actors that that work for you, you know, kind of see you as that like father figure to come to and be, you know, get advice and and navigate the world? Yeah, I think that Yes, I do think they're with a certain level of power and leadership, there are expectations to to lead, right? Yeah. To have a point of view, to share that point of view. And that can be overwhelming at times, but there's also a, a real understanding that that, is, that comes with the job, that comes with the responsibility. Yeah, which you seem to, you know, you're obviously gravitated to it from being a performer. Does are there day like days that you miss performing? Like, do you ever just want to like jump in there when no, you don't at all? Oh, that's a hard no. That was a hard and, shake. Yeah, no. it was a lot very, of head shaking there. Now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did one one day. Um, we were this was, I mean, like 10 years ago, but there was a performance where the understudy couldn't go on and the person playing the role couldn't go on. Stop. And I was the choreographer on the production and I got roped into going on for one performance. And that performance was just very clarifying that it was not something that I was ever interested in doing. <laughs> so that solidified it. You're like, okay, yes. yeah, no, this is the worst. You're like, if I ever thought I was missing this, I'm not. <laughs> okay. Well, so of all the things that you do do, though, you know, out of choreography, directing, which one is your favorite? Like, or do you see them all kind of as the same thing, uh, part of the whole? I mean, I think I see them all as part of a whole. I see them all as sort of a way, a form of storytelling. And I think that I'm always going to be a director that is interested in the way bodies move in space and how that the the bodies 
the movement of people, how that clarifies the storytelling. But I think as I get older, I'm, I would rather direct than I would choreograph. I think that's just as to me, as I get older, that is, and also as I get older, there was a time period where I was much more interested in like doing it all. Like I have to be in control of the whole thing. And as I get older, I am much more interested in the collaborative process and having another um, choreographer in the room. And so. Well, I know for a lot of theaters, they, they do like when it's a one-stop shop, when the director can also choreograph, because it's just, it's. (laughs) (laughs) that's for sure yeah yeah. but then you you definitely want to kind of micromanage or not micromanage but to give give away the responsibility and do less of that micromanaging as time goes on because you're like life is short this is a lot yes yes (laughs) you know i know you as someone in the theater who pushes boundaries in your work and what drives you to push those boundaries and can you give us some examples and have you ever felt like you've pushed it a little too far have you ever like there's been an opening night and you see the reaction of the crowd and you're like oh fuck i stepped in it (laughs) (laughs) bit of a loaded question but sorry that's a loaded we have i mean as artists our job is to push boundaries to test boundaries to see sort of like what is possible how do we surprise our audience? How do we excite our audience in new ways? Like the the worst thing to me would be for somebody to to respond to something I created and say, that was fine. <laughs> That's true. I Honestly, can't think of anything. Yeah. I can't think of it. I would rather somebody hate something hate that yes. I created vehemently than say something is fine. Yeah. So I think that had there been moments where I've taken a risk and in hindsight, did it maybe not pay off? Yeah, absolutely. For those times. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think that there, you know, there was a world, I'm not going to say the title of it, but there was a world premiere musical that I did that was very sort of like cynical and a little bit, if David Mamet wrote a musical, like it was really aggressive (laughs) in its toxic masculinity. And when I did it, when I, when I directed the piece, I thought it was something that I had never seen before in a, in a musical theater setting. It really excited me. And in hindsight, I don't think I would do anything differently. I think I would still, I learned so much from that experience, but I think, I don't know. Well, you still, I feel I like you still it. don't really regret yeah. it. Yeah. Like at the end of the no. day, it might be like, oh, yeah. well, that wasn't ideal, but it was right. still better than fine. Exactly. So yeah. Exa- and like, people hated it. And I, again, <laughs> prefer that to, and other people loved it. So like, I mean, yeah. I would prefer that sort of like bipolar reaction to it than a sort of middle road of it was okay. Yeah, I've definitely kind of found, I mean, it was it was kind of a hard lesson for me to learn as far as, you know, kind of being an overachiever my whole life, wanting to be, you know, very type A, be the best at everything to go into even just doing hospitality and, and restaurants and then hearing people like not like it as far mm-hmm. as like, you know, I, we had one, oh my gosh, I, I don't even know if I've told you this, Todd, but we had a review after we had opened, three months after we had opened, and it was by a certain lady that I will name, uh, Hannah Raskin. <laughs> and she, you know, basically caught us on a couple few rough, it was like a rough start. I mean, you're opening a restaurant, it's massive, there's a lot going on, but it was not that nice of a review. <laughs> and I kind of had to, my immediate reaction was to first of all, go on Twitter didn't realize at the time that Twitter was like visible to everybody. And so I posted a picture of a line out the out of the door for brunch the next day and said, line out the door is the best like response to a terrible review, like hashtag haters gonna hate hashtag like all these things. And then like, literally, yeah. <laughs> my phone started going off, people were sharing it. And it became like an, a news article. And I was like, oh, okay, well, a lot of things went wrong here. But overall, it was kind of a lesson to be like, well, you know, if somebody is like paying attention to you at all, then that means you're doing something like that you're, yeah. you, you are, you are creating something and it's going to be kind of a learning process, but at least you're not like never mentioned. Right. <laughs> like right. It didn't I mean, happen. It sounds yes. like you, you, I, st- you steer away from indifference. You don't, you don't want... I, you know what I mean? 
opinions are yeah. you like people with opinions. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that bad. I don't. Yeah. I think that that is what, yeah, that's what drives me. That's what I, I think that the moments that I feel like I have failed as an artist are the moments that it feels like what I have created could evaporate and nobody would remember it. Yeah. What do you feel like is kind of your, the biggest message that you're kind of trying to get out there with your productions and, and, and what would you say is like kind of the most important one that you've had so far? This is going to sound so corny. I can't wait. (laughs) It's the reason that I am attracted to musical theater. It is because to me, the most important message to get across is one of of love and humanity and acceptance that's the the corny (laughs) no i but but i love it it, so but that's what is that's what's important to me is is creating experiences and telling stories that call upon our better angels right Mm. that call upon us upon us to be better humans better people and so I think if I think about the the projects that sort of toxic masculinity mm-hmm. musical where I go, I don't think that was being honest to who I am as an artist. I don't think that's being honest to the message that I want to impart into the world. And so maybe that's a reason that that wasn't as successful okay, as yeah. it might have been in some other artist's hand. So that's what's important to me. And what do you think is like kind of the one that, our, our show and maybe it's hard to, to, to pinpoint mm-hmm. just one but one that you felt like really was the, the got that message you really want the love the all that feelings across and that you were the most proud of I mean we just did a recreation of rent at signature that I think particularly coming out of the pandemic was a story about the need for community and the need about connecting and reaching out to each other and and it, I mean, is a story about love. It's how does the lyric go? 525,600 minutes, measure in love, right? I mean, that's, that is the message that I feel like is important in the world right now. And so I think that was very effective coming out of this pandemic. Matthew, knowing what you know now, if you could go back and talk to 10 year old Matthew, what would you We're say? Not five year old Matthew, because he had a lot to deal with already. Exactly. Ten year old. Exactly. Yes. Ten year old Matthew. Yeah. What would you say to him? Mm. I mean, it's interesting because five year old Matthew at least. Oh, so had... we're always going back to five year old. <laughs> no, it's interesting. Five year old Matthew at least had joy and like and and wasn't quite as sort of. Don't say jaded. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, no, but like 10 year old Matthew, 10 year old Matthew had a lot more walls. 10 year old okay. Matthew was a lot more. So what, what I would say to 10 year old Matthew is like, find more of the joy of five year old Matthew. What were the, wa- like, were the walls from l- the bullying? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the walls in 10 year old Matthew were the normal walls in a gay 10 year old boy. Like it's, you start to like pretend to be something that you're not that so that you are more accepted by a broader group of people. You know, you start to lose sight of the little boy who dressed up as Judy Garland in his bedroom and sang Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Like that is, to me, that's like the saddest part of, and I'm interested in like, is that the same now for a young gay boy? I don't know. But I think that definitely for me, what I would want for 10-year-old Matthew is more, less walls and more joy and more not letting go of, the five-year-old, you know, I, in my, yeah. at my job, I have a picture of myself at like the age of like four or five or something. And I have like a tie-dye rainbow colored shirt on and I have a rainbow painted on my face. And like, I frequently will look at it and just go like, don't be mean to him. Right. Like that's that. what, oh my God. you know, Ooh, you I know, be be kind, be kind to that boy because that boy was joyful and uninhibited, and um, so. Well, you mentioned no, that- you mentioned changing yourself when you're trying to be something you're not. Laura, what was that? It's a code code switching. Code. It's, it's called yeah. code switching. Do you feel like you have to do that? Like that was. It I seems like there was I a lot do. that happened between five and ten. So did that like kind of in yeah. part on you? Like that's what you needed to do. Oh, 100%. I think that as we, 
particularly those like middle school, high school years, there it all life was completely code switching. It was it was trying to be acceptable in a heteronormative world. And I think as I get older, that becomes less important. But even now I find myself in certain situations where I am trying to tamp down the gay, I guess, or the the more flamboyant aspects of me. So well it used to be for me in in South Carolina, it used to be you had to code switch so you wouldn't get beat up or you wouldn't get attacked. Yeah. Because if you yep. were any kind of flamboyant, you know, you would be beer bottles would be thrown at you from pickup trucks going by and stuff like that. So I think the code switching was for a lot of gay young gay men, it was sort of survival. Or it's always survival, really. It's protection, right? I don't know. I think I keep going back to how much you kind of, you know, we asked you, what would you tell 10-year-old Matthew? And you go back to the five-year-old Matthew. And and I think that in a way, it's, it's like my first instinct was like, okay, something crazy happened between five and 10. But at the same time, I think that that is kind of like, that's your period of your life when you, you want to fit in. You want to be just like everybody else, no reason to be have beer bottles thrown at you, but also in general, just yeah. don't want anything to be thrown at you, whether it's example, insults or whatever. Yeah, yeah this is an extreme <laughs> yeah. example, but in an, uh, other everyday life. But I, one of a, like a powerful thing that I don't even remember what book it was I was reading, but it was kind of a self-help therapeutic. Well, I think we all probably kind of dove a little too deep into that with the pandemic going on as far as mm-hmm. like, tell us what to do. But one of the main messages was kind of, you know what it was from Todd? It was from the body keeps the score. The body keeps the score. <laughs> so yeah. essentially that you should think about your young self and, and whenever you're going through a tough time and be like, would young Laura be this hard on herself? Like how would young Laura view this entire yeah. situation so I think that's actually incredibly healthy that you recognize that. And then you actually have yeah. a picture of yourself. And I feel like we all should take that home yeah. with us and I'm, do it ourselves. I'm literally <laughs> just I'm thinking, like, what picture it, exactly? You know, it's yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, is awesome. Great message. You know, that book is about um, how things, we talked about this yesterday with Susan, how the trauma and stress and whatever will physically manifest in your body. And it will show mm-hmm. in different ways, whether that's, you know, your stomach is turning or you, you know, you get over illness or illness or, like, or whatever. Yeah, I mean, you could, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I don't know if you've ever read yeah. that book, but you should go read it because it's really yeah, good. It this, great. They should start paying me for how often <laughs> I mention it. But so, you know, it, it sounds like you're a very busy person, obviously. <laughs> I think now, as of my latest research, you've done over 25 shows now. What yeah. are you currently working on? And what do you see in your future? Like, what, 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 is, what is next for Matthew? Sure. So we just announced our upcoming season for Signature, which that's like a huge undertaking just to get to that moment. And so now I'm in the process of preparing that next season, whether it is the things that I am directing or it's me as a producer working with the other directors to sort of map out who the designers are going to be, who the artists involved will be. And so the next thing that I'm directing is a newer musical called No Place to Go, which is about a man who is, his job is getting outsourced to Mars. And it's just about unemployment and expectations around work in our country and capitalism. And anyway, so it's this really, I think, actually very profound, moving little jewel of a story. And then I do Into the Woods in the Winter, which is a Sondheim musical. So I'm excited about that as well. Yeah. So you, first of all, I have a question. How, what is, what's the job that's being outsourced to Mars? <laughs> it's never, spe- it's never specific in the story. So it's oh, really? uh, when you, okay. yeah, you meet, you meet this character, you meet this guy who has de- dedicated 20 years of his life to this company. And it's about dignity of work. And it's about the ways in which we devote ourselves to work and our life to work. And then for that not to be reciprocated by our work. Yeah. So you never, in the story, you never really find out what his actual job is you just know that he is has dedicated his life to this company and the company is taking his job away and this this man who's in his 50s has to figure out what the next step for his life is you know yeah 
Well, that's, it sounds very deep and relatable, but also like one and of those funny. things where, yeah, well, it comedy. should be. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> if it's yeah. a comedy, I can handle this. Cause I was about yeah. to say, yeah. if I don't know what the job <laughs> yeah. is, it'll, that's the kind of story that would drive me crazy. So crazy. I'd be like, no, you tell me just on the back. <laughs> the, you don't have to tell anybody else. Just tell me what his you job is. You just have to is. tell me. Sure. Yeah. Just spill the tea to me. I won't tell anybody yeah. else. The show is very like Severance meets Bo Burnham meets Woody Guthrie is what I keep telling people. Oh, wow. Well, that is quite the combo. And when could we see that? That is running at Signature in, I believe it begins in September. So Okay. All right. So you got a little bit of time to prepare, get your tickets. Okay. So I remember we talked about at the beginning of the podcast about, or before we even started that there's a little surprise at the end. So here we go. We do, we have a tradition on the show. We do what we call a question of the day. So we talk about a lot of heavy stuff. So just a little light, a little, something a little lighter. Sure. So the question, cleanser, if you will. <laughs> palette cleanser, yeah. The question of the day is who is your first celebrity crush? Oh, it's probably Jonathan Taylor Thomas from. Oh my uh, gosh, that is so fun. Mine too. Oh, yeah. oh my gosh, really? Yes. Yeah, he was. He was so, he was so cute. Yeah. Like everybody always said that, and I was yeah. just like, I couldn't get past the haircut. Or it's like it's I just, either that or it's Zach. What's his face? Morris. Say by the bell, Zach Morris. Mark Paul oh Goss- yeah, Goss- well, Goss- well you know he was irresistible. <laughs> Uh, that was definitely a tough Finding choice. Finding out that he was a natural yeah. brunette really upset me. Uh, <laughs> He's a natural brunette? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, now he, I'm very upset. He was on a show called Frank Lane Bash, and that was his real, he was using his real oh, hair color. Oh, yeah. I saw him cool. in that. That's his real, yeah, okay. I thought That's they happening. dyed his hair for that. Wow, yeah. No, no this he's is, not blonde. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's just ruining my childhood memory. So let's just <laughs> pretend like that didn't happen. But that is just too funny just because, uh, you know, home improvement. All the same. Oh my God. That show. <laughs> and remember that, remember that show? Yeah. And yeah. And they had the Wilson was the neighbor. You never saw his face. You just oh, saw yeah, the yeah. above. Oh God. I love that show. I know. There I'm going to go watch it later. I think. There you go. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure. Habits. Thank you for coming on the show today. We really appreciate yes. you and and being so vulnerable and and talking about so many intense subjects. I think you sure. know for the young gay kids in America, I'm I'm hoping that they had have a better, easier time than we than we did. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yes. Yeah, we really appreciate you coming on and definitely like getting that message out, continuing to get that message out with with everything that you make. So I hope you know how important that is to a lot of people and and that it, it is, I think, making change on its own. So, you know, that's this has been awesome. So thank you so much for coming on and come back anytime. Thank you. Thanks so <laughs> All right. much. Have a great thank day you for having me. All right. Bye. What a great guy, isn't he? Yeah. Like just, I was just so appreciative that he took time out of his like extremely busy schedule to, to talk to us on a Sunday. When people listen to this, it'll be a Tuesday uh, or any other day of the week, but (laughs) this Memorial Day weekend. So it was kind of a big deal that he took time out to talk to us. And I'm just like, you know, I think for me, I almost felt more like it gave me more of insight into you. Todd and like your oh, life yeah. and how you know you guys had to what you had to go with, through. It's so interesting because I don't have those conversations with other gay men. Really, and I don't. We, I, I really That's don't. Something and like generally, y'all don't talk about. Not really. I mean, we sort of if we talk about it, it's like we get a, a nod to it, like a comedy nod to it, like you know, oh yeah, what you know, Judy Garland, <laughs> you know. But it never yeah. uh, like, of course, there was. I, I don't know a gay man or a gay boy who wasn't bullied. Or who wasn't yeah. made to feel like their their existence wasn't was out of the norm, and I think that his point to that that's why gay men are so attracted to musical theater is because it, those stories focus on the person that's the outsider. And yeah. uh, I actually really never thought about that. And I thought that I was know. extremely I... insightful. There were several things he said that I was like mic drop moment, especially the I did. part. It's almost like it's like there, but we just didn't put it two and two together exactly. but it's like i don't know i don't think it's that o- i hope it's not that obvious to everybody else that no. <laughs> that's what's and going then, on but then but- like all like per, that musicals are predominantly written by gay jewish white men like yeah well <laughs> you know which is kind of old school musicals yeah for sure yeah i mean i don't know it just makes me curious too it's to like musicals that were written decades and decades and decades ago was it 
the same kind of people that was their way of, they couldn't even say it out loud. So that was like their one way to actually do it. And then have it a lot of the, his obsession with Judy Garland, just kind of like, I don't know, kind of made me giggle in a way. Cause it's like that she was this vessel for that message while she's just, you know, a, a a straight woman. Right. But But Judy Garland was married to many gay men. So oh, really? yeah, Vincent Minnelli was gay. So well, they, I knew that, but I guess I didn't, I don't know. This, oh, this yeah, is like, all kinds of have like, her boyfriends. And I mean, th- but back then, you know, if you were a gay man, you know, th- look at rock Hudson, he was with women. I mean, he dated women. So yeah, I mean, but, but Matthew, I think it's so great that he is, I mean, to be so young and to be running that theater and and yeah. and directing at the level he is, I mean, you have to understand how brilliant the man is. I mean, he really, really has the accolades to back that up. But not only that, when you see his work, I was just telling you this before we started yeah. recording, when you see a production directed by Matthew Gardner, you leave the theater thinking differently. Yeah. Well, that's what I, that's what I loved about him so much is that it's like, you know, and I, I could, we obviously could sense that there were some things where he's like, well, that wasn't received so well, but as for the most part, it's like, it's in a very intentional, like what he does that he yeah. wants to make a difference. And, and, you know, whether that's outright or, or just something that he's kind of got an inclination to do. But mm-hmm. I, I think a big thing too, with him is just, it's, it, He's so humble that it was just like hard to get him to even admit that he had done so much. It's like, yeah, you are a badass. And, yeah. you know, it, but it, it was very endearing. And it, it kind of, I don't know, it makes it, it, it humanizes this whole thing, humanizes people so much. Exactly. And, and it, exactly. that's the point, right? Yes. And it shows why people are drawn to certain careers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They did also love his answer to the question of the day. Oh, yeah. I, I shared yeah. that same sentiment. John, I had a huge, I had a huge conversation on Jonathan Taylor Thomas and Elijah Wood back in the oh, day. Oh my God. Elijah Wood? Really? Yeah. He was Where, like, when, my, what was he? I on? wrote Elijah Wood. I can't even say this. <laughs> a letter. Oh my God. Did he respond? And, and I didn't send it. What you kept it? I kept it in a in a journal. Which I recently found when I was home. Oh my gosh! What did it say? It said, "I'd really like to go get some ice cream." Oh my god! How (laughs) old were you? Oh god! Was whenever the movie Forever Young with Mel Gibson and Jamie Lee Curtis came out. I was going to say, when did you first? Whenever that came out, and then also around the good time of The Good Son. Okay. There was a a movie where Macaulay Culkin played a psychotic kid that you know terrorized Mm -hmm. his family. But yeah, so Jonathan Taylor Thomas was like. It. He was. I just like it. it. I liked his. I can't remember who played him now, but his older brother. Oh, that guy. Yeah. 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 Whatever that guy's name is. That's your. That was more your thing. No, 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 no. That's not my first celebrity crush, but I'm just saying everybody in all, everybody my age, all the girls, I'm sure some of the boys were so into JTT. And that was like always the the middle part. It was the middle part. But I couldn't with the middle part. Like I just couldn't (laughs) on him. Like it's not like it was. Directed like I can't do a middle part on anybody, but it was like first he looked like a mushroom to me. And every do you did you ever get Tiger Beat or whatever? Like yes, any of those? Tiger and Beat. It was always JTT is the poster. I'm like, guys, this is not Come my style. Yeah, like let's <laughs> can Tiger Beat. Let's pick a new one to this this month, okay? Well, Matthew, I mean, he. I'm really, really, I'm just honored that he took time to. Do you want to hear my answer? Yeah. The question of the day. Yes, I do. <laughs> okay. I do. All right. So it would so it's more embarrassing than yours, I think, honestly. What? Is Paul Walker. And from I mean, he eventually is in Fast and Furious, but I made a binder oh. of oh, okay. pictures <laughs> cut out of Paul Walker and put them in like a scrapbook. That I just had, like, what? I don't know why I had At so least much it was free Paul time. Paul Walker and not Walker, Texas Ranger. No, 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 <laughs> Paul Walker. Come on, the, the sexy blonde, natural blonde. Right. He's R.I.P. But I, right. you know, that that was my that was man. Your, that was your jam. Yeah, that was my jam, and my man. Well, my real first celebrity crush was not. It was that was like as a kid, but like as I got into more of a teenager, it was the guy who played uh, the Rocketeer. Yeah. So I have some questions 
<laughs> what is the Rocketeer? The Rocketeer. This is the movie. You can. If you can uh, okay. This is the movie, and it's it's it was about a guy who strapped a rocket thing on the back of his uh, like rocket. He became a rocket. He became a rocketeer. Rocketeer. <laughs> oh, wow, I sound real smart. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I just wish everybody will post the picture of the rocketeer on. Yeah, we have you know, to. We'll we post have to. About his this name is Bill Campbell. Okay. Well, Bill Campbell, I hope you're still out there and you know kicking because Jennifer Connelly was in this movie with him. Oh wow! Yes, I can't believe I haven't seen this movie. It was 1991. Alan Arkin, Jennifer Connelly, Paul Sorvino. Timothy Dalton. Oh, wow. That's quite the cast. It was Walt Disney Pictures. So what age were you when that became your your real crush? Nin- 91. I was born in 82. So. So math. Nine. nine. <laughs> okay. That's, uh, you know, I was nine I, years old. Yeah. And I thought. Just I was shy just, of I, that. I was just like, God, he's so. I didn't, At the time, you know, I wasn't like. But I just like, God, he, I just, you know, oh, that. He's so handsome. He's so handsome. But I couldn't say that. Back. I couldn't even admit that to myself back then, but I knew that I had an affinity for him. Uh, so that kind of like an indicator, like I almost wanted to ask Matthew that, like he was, went right to JTT and I was like, was that the moment you knew? Oh yeah. <laughs> like when you I mean, saw JTT. You, you, you never, I don't even know, maybe other gay men have a better answer for this, but you never really, with me, I mean, some people are like, I knew, I knew when I was, you know, da, da, da. Yeah. you know that you have an attraction but yeah. you don't know what it is. Okay. And you don't know why you're not. You just assume that the reason you're not fully attracted to women or girls is that, you know, that's normal. Oh, that it'll come. Like you'll eventually that it will come, that it'll become... eventually come. Yeah. And you don't focus on the fact that you are into men until you get older and you start having urges. And then okay. you're like, oh, crap. Like, I oh yeah, this feels faintly like why am I not attracted to this woman? Okay, yeah. I guess let's uh something's wrong with me. I need to force myself to yeah. fit into this world, to fit into this box. But yeah, I, I honestly listen. I just feel like both you and Matthew, I feel like are very like I I think it's very sweet and kind that you are quick to say, Oh, well, I'm a cis, you know, cis male, like I'm mm-hmm. I don't have that hard. Like it, so many other people have it harder, but Correct. I think it, you should give yourself some credit that that is the hardest time of anybody's life. Right. So you're dealing with a totally different at like layer and that, that is a big deal. And I, and I, you know, I don't want to like belabor the point or say like, you know, that this is the other people do have hardships and, and but I think that y'all kind of downplay like the impact of that, that I has think on because you. we, you know, because I don't know, if I, I don't want to think that I downplay it because it, it was very serious, but it, but yeah, I mean, I guess because it was, it was so painful, Laura. And I, yeah. I think that, and I just felt like I was disappointing my, my family and my circle. You just want it to go away. You want it to just leave you. And when it doesn't leave you and you, and you're like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm stuck with, I'm stuck yeah. with this because honestly, that's what, that's what pisses me off so much when people are like, it is a choice. No. Oh my God. I would not I'd... choose this life at I'd... all. Okay, it would well, be so only... much easier. I would, you know, it'd be easier to have a baby. It would be easier to get, you know, for years it was, you know, we couldn't even get married. We couldn't do any of that yeah. stuff. So it's just, it's, I love when people say that. But anyway, we're digressing. No, Matthew, no, but I, I do want to say that I think that, like, I'm, I'm. Thank you for being open about that because sure. I, I think that this is probably one of the first real kind of conversations we've had about that, and I just, yeah, it is. Know. It's, it's a moment. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's interesting to talk about it with another gay man in the yeah. arts in the same field who decided not to go the performer route and has honed, yeah. the, has honed the hardships and stuff he's in and put it into his work. Cause I do that with my, with my, you know, sense yeah, memory stuff when I'm doing a yeah. role or whatever, but yeah, I mean, I think that I'm going to start having more of these conversations yeah. with my other gay friends because we just don't talk about it. And I think that what it did for me today was a little healing for me hearing his, Good. Okay. it's, it's, yeah. it's weird. Like hearing another gay man say that he went through the same thing I went through, like a bullying because you were who you yeah. are. It's there's something about it that is comforting. <laughs> like you were both uh, like, you know what I'm saying? Like there, there was validating. I mean, yeah. too, that you that it wasn't just you. 
And right. And because I'm sure at that moment you feel like this is just me. I'm all alone in this. It's like, I don't know. I want to take five-year-old Todd and I want to hug him so tight. Well, five-year-old Matthew really was, you know. Yeah, he he's was, coming he out sure everywhere. So he, I he love was, that he has a picture of himself with a rainbow on his shirt and a rainbow on his face at his office. I think that that is what a great idea. What a great reminder that maybe you in know, solidarity we him. should. Yeah, in solidarity, maybe we should change our profile pictures to our five-year-old selves for a little bit, just to remind so. ourselves. I think so. I think we should do that. Yeah, tribute, tribute it was a very Matthew. powerful. I think there's a lot of yeah. Kudos to Matthew. He's figured it out. But no, I like. I think that in general, that it, it was a very brave kind of message. And, and I know we've we've talked about a lot of deep stuff on here. And one of the things that we were kind of talking about before this was, well, have we kind of just, everybody just accepts the gay people now and it's all over. It's like, the, well, yeah, that and I also can't imagine what it's like for lesbians because yeah. the pressure that's put on women in this mm-hmm. world, but then when you can't, you, know, you can't fit in with the girls at the salon saying, yeah. "Oh, my husband, my boyfriend, my da 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 da." You know, at, back then, as I'm saying, now yeah. it's a lot more. It's a, it, I'm sure it's a different ball game. But I mean, I can't imagine what it was like for for lesbians growing up during when I was younger because I think women have it hard enough as it is. Yeah. So well, that's that, why I love you to, that you recognize to, that. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, so I just think that that is. I would love to. You know, we've never, I don't think we've had a lesbian on this program up to this we point. Haven't. I think it I would think be great to talk to someone who is lesbian. And because I would really love to hear if they were bullied by other women. Yeah. I mean, I, I, is there something there? Because if it is, I've, I don't really hear women talking about it. I don't hear no, my lesbian. It's not a very common, I feel like even growing up, it wasn't, you, you never even thought about it. Like it wasn't like a, I think in a way, we if as a child, when same age that you were kind of talking about of like, well, you you knew something is different, but you just thought it mm-hmm. would you know go away. I mean, I think women in general or girls. Now I feel like I'm speaking for all women. And I don't like that, but <laughs> that you, I felt like that those urges or whatever came a little bit later than mm-hmm. like for most boys. So you did kind of just depend on like because sometimes you would look at. JTT and be like, okay, well, he couldn't even lift like a large box and I'm going to need more. (laughs) So it's like you finally discover men at some point and you're like, oh, this is what I was looking for. And I think there's a little bit of that with like, you know, when I was growing up as far as the, the image of women and what they should be when I was younger was be a stick. And, and so you just kind of like, hoped and prayed that later on in life that boys would start to like you, even though you are in a stick. So it's, you know, we, we all got our struggles, but I just, I don't, I'm just really appreciate you kind of sharing that. Of course. And I love you. I love you too. Matthew, thank you so much for your time. Yes, it was wonderful. All right. We'll talk to you next time, guys. Next time, bye. bye.